I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm here with Paul Jernberg. Uh, nice to see you, Paul. Good to see you, David. Okay. Uh, Paul will be well known to regular listeners of this podcast. He is uh, one of the leading composers of sacred music today, I would say, and has a lot of uh, very interesting thoughts and ideas on what you might call the philosophy of sacred music and its place in the church. Um, and we're, I've invited him back again today because I read a, um, a, a blog post of his in which he was exploring more deeply uh, the ways in which we can define what sacred music is exactly. Um, and uh, re regular listeners will have heard us refer to Pius X's criteria. We're going to come back to that. And um, as I pointed out to Paul in discussions, uh, in the end, uh, there's a, it's a matter of judgment as to what those are. They, they help us somewhat, but not completely. Um, and so we're going to discuss uh, how we can start to develop uh, more uh, helpful criteria, shall we say, or more narrower criteria uh, from that starting point. Um, before we do so, uh, Paul, would you just tell us, uh, just to remind people about your organization and where people can uh, get hold of you? And especially those who want to commission works of music from one of our leading composers, uh, where they can get in touch with you. So just tell us that first of all, just so just to remind people who you are and what sure. you do. Well, my my work is supported by a nonprofit organization <clears throat> called Magnificat Institute of Sacred Music, and we're located here in Lancaster, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, people can reach me. Yep. And the, the whole, the, the mission of the Magnificat Institute is for the renewal of sacred music in the Catholic Church, basically. It's a very broad mission, but which we have very specific projects uh, aimed to fulfill that. And uh, I can be reached either through uh, one of two websites, either pauljernberg.com or magnificatinstitute.org. Both of those websites work to reach me. Right. And, and the, the, the thing that um, I would say is that on the whole, you welcome people writing to you and asking questions and discussion. I, I mean, my, my experience absolutely. is that you love to engage with people in these ideas. So don't hesitate. Um, I hope I'm not unleashing millions of emails into your inbox i suspect not i don't, I don't think we're that influential here no way of beauty but i think those that come to you will be uh will have interesting things to say uh yes. okay so let's let's get into it um what is sacred music um you said to me you sent me an, an email with an outline just remind you said uh you said, not sure if I should briefly relate the story of saving the obelisk being moved into St. Peter's Square. Um, well, that in itself is just an intriguing statement. <laughs> so without knowing whether it's even relevant, why don't you tell us the story of yeah. saving the obelisk being moved into St. Sure. Peter's Square? Right, and there is, a, there is a strong connection. <laughs> but, um, 
it, you know, in the 16th century, the, the St. Peter's Square was, or St. Peter's was renovated and they, they, they constructed the present St. Peter's Square. And part of that project to, uh, to do that was to bring in this Egyptian obelisk, which had been brought to Rome by Caligula, you know, many, many uh, centuries before, before Christ. And uh, not many centuries before Christ, but they, it, the obelisk had been there a long time. It was apparently there when, when St. Peter was, was crucified upside down. But this obelisk was brought, uh, the idea was to bring it to the middle of St. Peter's Square, where it is today. Uh, Pope Sixtus, Pope Sixtus was the one who was, uh, had in, uh, was doing this project. So anyway, it was a, a real big endeavor to move this obelisk because it's so heavy and it's very long and they had to have hundreds of men and horses and winches and all sorts of things to make this happen. So much so that they, um, the Pope ordered that everyone be totally silent while the obelisk was being moved because the, the engineer who was organizing it said, this is so sensitive, we have to be really focused. So please, no noise whatsoever. So believe it or not, the Pope actually imposed the death penalty on anybody who would talk during this. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so it was completely quiet. Anyway, so, so here comes the obelisk in with all these horses and people and, and ropes and so forth. And things are going fine for a while, but then the, the obelisk starts swaying and, and this sailor who's there, his name is Bendetto Bresca, he noticed that the ropes were starting to fray, and he knew he knew how to uh, to solve that problem. But in fact, if if he was quiet, the ropes would have broken. The obelisk would have smashed down. It would have been a catastrophe. But so instead, he defied the Pope's order and he yelled out in his Ligurian di dialect, "Water on the ropes! Water on the ropes!" Because <laughs> he knew this is a sailor. This is what you do to strengthen the ropes so they don't pray. And fortunately, the men there, they, they obeyed. They threw water on the ropes. And, and the ropes were strengthened and the, and the project was saved. So um, because he had defied the Pope's orders, he was brought uh, to Pope Sixtus, and uh, who did not in any way punish him, but instead asked uh, what he could be given as a reward. And uh, as legend has it, Benedetto, Benedetto asked for uh, the right to provide the palms for Palm Sunday, and that in his little town, uh, has provided the palms for Palm Sunday since that time, with just a very brief uh, uh, interruption in that. So now that might seem to be a strange analogy to sacred music, but I'm going to bring it together uh, in a few minutes. Okay, go ahead. Um, and I, I can say right now that part of, part of the, um, the dilemma, you might say, is what do we do when we see something that seems to be, do, be, be do, being led in a wrong direction by the church authorities? What do we do in that situation? 
And uh, I've talked a lot about silence in my in my blogs and podcasts, but in this particular blog, there is talking about there's also a time to shout out as Benedetto did. So now I'm gonna I need need to go back a step and talk again about the definition of sacred music. Up until really the Vatican Council, the Vatican the Second Vatican Council there was a pretty clear understanding that when we talk about sacred music in the Catholic Church, we really mean that what the, the original meaning of that word sacred means, which is consecrated. This is music that has been specifically consecrated for use in the liturgy. And that's what distinguishes it from music that's outside of the liturgy. So you have this idea of sacred and profane. And sacred and, and profane not being a bad thing, it just simply meaning outside the temple. Mm, yeah. Sacred meaning inside the temple, that which is appropriate for use in the liturgy itself. And, uh, and so this is the whole basis upon which we have our, our church documents, such as uh, the, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, chapter 6, talks about sacred music, this is the whole, you know, that's the point. What about this music in the liturgy? Uh, and that's implied then also with Musicum Sacrum, which is the post-conciliar document. Um, Pope Pius also goes on to say in the introduction to his Modo Proprio, 1903, that he sort of states the obvious, which is that this, this sacred music, which is appropriate for the liturgy, is intended to clothe the sacred text. Right? So, so it distinguishes it from music. We might just think, well, this is a beautiful piece, and that's, you know, th this seems fitting, but you no, know, the, the, whole, the whole focus of sacred music for centuries has been the idea of clothing the text that is not our own invention, but which is handed down to us. And, and so, sorry, that, that's the original definition. Now, here's, here's the problem that comes in. Because if we jump to um, Musicum Sacram, we read uh, the following statement. I'm going to read it uh, verbatim here, the English translation. And it says, by sacred music is understood that which, being created for the celebration of divine worship, is endowed with a certain holy sincerity of form. Okay, we might say so far so good, but then... The following come under the title of sacred music here. Gregorian chant, sacred polyphony in its various forms, both ancient and modern, sacred music for the organ and other approved instruments, and sacred popular music, be it liturgical or simply religious. Now, as you can see, that's not maybe a strict definition, but it's giving a description that's bringing in some new ideas. And because when previously, whenever we talked about religious music, that that means in church documents, what it means is it's music that's 
that's good and appropriate, but not fitting in the liturgy, right? That's, that's the whole meaning of that term. You can see that throughout the, the, the teaching of the church. Interestingly, this quote here, that I just this, this last quote from Musicum Sacrum, where it lists these different kinds of music, it's almost a direct quote from another document in 1958, which was issued when Pius XII was, was dying. And I, by that, I don't mean to imply any, uh, anything sinister, but uh, the, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship issued a, a document back in 1958 saying this, this, this list here, where, where sacred music can be considered all these kinds of things. But in that same document, it makes clear a little bit later on, say, but of course, religious music is not for the liturgy. <laughs> so, so what we have here is a fuzziness that's, that's coming into play, which, you know, reading this once or twice or even five times, you might think, well, what's the big deal? But then if as an educator or as a person really trying to understand this, if we try to have any kind of precision with our definition, we see that the definition has, has lost its, it, its clear limits. Because now we're, it's almost like we're saying sacred music includes both consecrated and non-consecrated music. So we, we're basically, we seem to be contradicting ourselves. Um, so, so this is, for anybody who looks at this clearly, David, this, this becomes uh, a little bit problematic. And so what most people that I've heard speak about this today, what, they, what they'll say now is this, and, and it's following this Musicum Sacrum. I think this is where they get it. They'll say, well, of course, sacred music is much bigger than liturgical music, right? It's, you know, all sorts of things. You can have, you can have uh, this great classical piece or this great, um, this instrumental piece, this choral work. It may not, it may not have a liturgical text. It may not be meant for the liturgy, but yet it's sacred because here we have this list, right? And um, and I think that trying to understand this is it seems to be you might say a concession to our culture in which the culture today or maybe the last fifty hundred years I don't know has thought of sacred in more of a subjective sense like. Wow, that that does something to me. It's numinous. It's it it inspires me. Therefore, it must be sacred. Well, you see, that's a different approach from the objective idea of this is music that's per, that's consecrated for the liturgy and particularly suited for the liturgy. So um, here we've got what seems to me to be a problem on our hands of conflict of definitions, and. Um, a lot of people solve that problem simply by calling the music for the liturgy now either liturgical music or sacred liturgical music. That way you sort of get around the problem because you, um, you use both terms. I think liturgical music, that term is problematic for various reasons I won't go into right now. Sacred liturgical music works, but it's very wordy. Um, let's so. Let's try to look at Musicum Sacrum a little bit more clearly to see what exactly the intention is. Now, 
some people will just throw it out. You know, some people, and this is a certain uh, movement we see today, is like, hey, problems with Vatican II, problems with these documents, just go back, you know, before they were ever written and take that as your basis. But I think there's a, there, I think, I don't know if that's fully Catholic to do it that way. I think we need to say, is there an important message in Musicum Sacrum, even if there's problems here? Um, interestingly, the, as I said, as I quoted before, uh, Musicum Sacrum talks about sacred music as, as having a certain holy sincerity of form. Now that sounds very interesting, but I, it, anybody who's looked into this a little more deeply might wonder, well, what does that mean? What, you know, that's fascinating, sincerity of form, but and holy, but so looking at the Latin and interestingly, it's, you have to dig to find the Latin version of this. Now, why that is, I don't know, but it is out there. If you dig hard enough, you'll find it. And the, the Latin that is quoted is just, a direct the Latin version of musicam? Yeah, the Latin version, which is the authoritative version. Yeah. Okay. It's a direct quote from Pius the Tenth, a direct quote stating the first his first two qualities, which are holiness and goodness of forms or beauty. And so. It's it's puzzling, but that so that's the intention there. That's that in the original, is actually to affirm the foundation that Pius X has laid, but that gets totally lost in, in translation, unfortunately. So uh, the question is how. So so what do we do with it? So the the other point that comes out is we read clearly and this is something for me and i think for for many of my colleagues uh, those of us who take who are church musicians these are the kind of documents we want to be immersed in and, and be thinking about and reflecting upon and and you know meditating so interestingly both this document and sacrosanctum concilium they all start by referring to the to the previous teaching, and particularly to Pius X um, is their foundation. So, my conclusion in this is that we that that to take Musicum Sacrum by itself is inappropriate. It's got as as all church documents, it's got to be taken in the context of the ongoing tradition and in the hermeneutic of continuity, which Pope Benedict XVI talks about so much. Um, and, and when we think of it in that way, things start falling in place. Because, uh, and if, but if we think about it as if there's a document that can just break off in a whole new different, different direction, we're gonna have problems. But if we read this, in the context of the tradition, we can see that there are there, there are important things that we can learn from it. It gives us an it, it, it's uh, now I'm I'm approaching this 
not trying to impute motives or whatever to those who wrote this, but I'm just saying because the church has been given a certain, given the authority by Christ to teach, that I think that even, even if the authors were a little bit mixed up, which it seems like maybe they were a little bit, even if that's the case, it's still something that we, that we should respect and learn from because it comes from the church. Just as, uh, now this might be a little bit dramatic uh, comparison, but uh, was it um, the high priest, Caiaphas, or, that, that said, you know, well, you don't understand anything, that one man needs to die for the whole nation. And he didn't know what he was talking about. But you see, because he was, he was the authoritative teacher, he had something important to say. And I think there's something similar to that here. And I, I think I'm, part of- I'm just gonna come in here for a second. So yeah. I, just to summarize what you're saying is you're trying to, or your, your assertion is that music and sacram um, is not a break from what Pius X was saying. It's very much in accord with it. Um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm inferring, uh, therefore, or uh, it sounds like that in the background, there is uh, the fact that this has been used to justify things which, in your opinion, go against what's Pius X in terms of music choices when you actually get down so yep. so what is happening is that people are bringing you know this reference to popular music uh, people are interpreting that as meaning whatever's going you know popular at the moment uh in the secular yeah. world um right. and turn it into and the the justification is music and sacrum. Is that the context? Is that the debate that you're entering pretty, into? Yeah, pretty much. Although I think that um, I think that the the way in which music and sacrum is worded, especially in its English translation, is problematic. And people talk about a built-in ambiguity, and it's hard not to see that in music and sacrum. But for somebody who's reading it with piety. You know, which is the way we should always be reading all the documents, then we're okay. Okay, but, never mind the yeah. English translation. That we, I, I'm ready to believe anything went on in the translation, okay? Um, sure, sure. And it doesn't matter anyway. The, 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 the easy way to counter that is the point you made, let's go to the Latin, all right? Right, um, that's right. Now, are those ambiguities there in the Latin too, as well, even yeah. le but less by degrees, would you say? That's right, a little bit less ambiguous, but still there's that sense of ambiguity because the, the big problem as I see it is um, maybe an innocent mistake, I don't know, but it's this listing, this listing of different kinds of sacred music. And they start out with, seems great, you know, let's start out with Gregorian chant. Okay, let's go on to polyphony, old, uh, traditional and newer. But then they go on to um, what is, clearly been regarded previously as good, but not appropriate to the liturgy. And I think that is, um, but they're not saying either, it's, it's, again, there's ambiguity because they're not saying, okay, here's our new definition, everybody. Safety mm -hmm. music is no longer consecrated. No, they're not. But they're including this list that just makes things a little bit more. Okay. Uh, so the way to dispel that, it seems to me, is to be clear what we mean by consecrated. 
Yeah. So we say, okay, whatever forms they're suggesting might be appropriate. And what I'm thinking of here is that uh, we don't have anything like as clear direction on art in the, um, you know, which is the area that I know about. And right. a lot of people say, I had discussions uh, with people who you know as well, actually, who want, what, what does the church tell us are the styles? And right. it simply doesn't. Um, no. It, it, what it does is define <coughs> um, criteria it broadly, far more broadly than Pius did, Pius the Tenth did in music. Right. Um, and then uh, leave it to choice. And that immediately gives the freedom to do it very badly, and a lot of people do, and a lot of people cynically take advantage of that and have done. Um, right. At the same time, what it ensures is that you have living and breathing traditions so that those who are interested in doing it well um, can be guided by that um, as well. But it yes. presupposes goodwill, shall we say, and That's good judgment on the, on the part of the artist. And so my thought is that what you're saying um, will, shall we say, reassure those whose judgment is good anyway. The question is, how do we tell who's got the good, everybody thinks they've got good judgment. I mean, I, I, I had no training in music and I think I've got perfect taste, okay? <laughs> and I think pretty much everybody does. In music, more than anything else, they're prepared to assert their taste. Um, so, how do we get through this? Now, my feeling is that the, these definitions, what they're doing is allowing, it's giving the people who feel as you do in regard to the music itself, who I would like to encourage, <laughs> uh, the, the reassurance and the, that um, under these um, documents, you do have the freedom to pursue this. That's right. And I think that that's sort of what I was, what I was uh, hinting at before was this idea that that's why I think that this Musicum Sacrum actually does have some very important new aspects to it. And that exactly in what you're saying is that it does allow free, a certain freedom that, that we need because, um, and hopefully we'll use that freedom. We, we, we're obliged to use that freedom in, with integrity. But it does, whenever you have a situation like this, you, you open up the possibility of people yeah. doing and you know, And what this won't do, however much we wish it would, is boxing, is basically shut out the bad popular music, you know, the music that we hate. Um, yeah. Because they will still, you know, I would say with sophistry, I mean, probably they would say with, they, um, with uh, good motive, you know, and, and so we, who knows? Yeah. But they will still be able to justify what they're doing, in my opinion, badly with this language too. Um, so the question then is, what is the value of this? Anybody, it's broad enough and vague enough that anybody right. can pick up on it and go where they want. The, I, to me, and I'll let you come in after this, the, the answer is 
at the very least, we want to assert that the traditional forms and the traditional interpretation of Pius X has a place there too, and to encourage mm -hmm. people to introduce that. Sure. Yeah, and this is always the tension that there is because um, on the one hand, it, we need to be firmly rooted in tradition. I mean, this is something that's obvious to me is a is a church musician is that if somehow we break loose from that and cut ourselves off from that that uh, those roots that we're going to inevitably be idiosyncratic or provincial or whatever we're, we're gonna we, we need to have some kind of rooting okay but that's the one side but on the other side if you you need to be open to inspiration and new inspirations that that really are going to resonate with people today right and so if, if you're if you're if you're bound you might say to only doing uh, Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony the, the danger is you're going to you're going to uh, fail in your responsibility to resonate with people today to draw people in to the mystery of the mass which is our a big part of our our calling mm. so so that's um yeah, and it, where were we? Yes. Well, and so the, the, the so you were narrowing this down then to trying to say, well, what does consecrated mean? Or I was going to push you on right. that. Which yeah, seems good. To be the for, for those with goodwill, they're the only ones we can speak to. We're not going to persuade those who don't want to do this anyway. I think, but for right. those who are goodwill, this will help guide them. To make decisions as to what how to exercise that freedom I, i'm thinking so maybe you could talk a little bit about that what what does it mean to be consecrated uh right in the way that you're yeah. using this yeah and this is a deep subject um i think that the first the first aspect of that is to study what it has been historically and to see that you know we so we in, which is really fascinating to trace the history of the chant that we have in the roman rite and also the other the eastern rites and to see that there is this uh it, it, it's a tradition that's been handed down all the way from the the early church from and from christ and the apostles that, you know speaking with with uh Jewish scholars and, and fr friends and so forth who know something about first century uh, Jewish chant. They tell me that, you know, for sure the Passover would have been chanted. At least some, there's some question about the words of consecration what, because it's a new element that was not in the, in the Passover. But the point is that you have this this entity, this this phenomenon of of consecrated music that is not that 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 has an organic unity to it, right? So, if we if we want to enter into this reality, we've got to first be part of that that uh, movement, part of part of that uh, tradition, and and without that, we're 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 stepping outside. So that that's now, 
what I would say beyond that is that uh, a couple of things, but one is that uh, we need to look at the principles. So, and this, this comes from being immersed in the tradition is that you, um, you can see all sorts of things in Gregorian chant, especially in Byzantine chant. And this, I've, I've written this about this extensively in my, uh, my article called The Logos of Sacred Music and in some of my blogs as well. So we need to know the principles as well. There are certain parameters that we need to follow. And you know, some of these are, for example, the use of, of, of melody and modes and harmony and rhythm. There's certain characteristics of the sacred music that if we, um, if we disregard those, we're, we're in trouble. For example, uh, the rhythm is, is, is always subordinate to the text. That does not mean there are never any regular rhythms, but the, the rhythm is, and, the, and the beat, so to speak, should never be dominant. And when they become dominant, this is something we often hear in music today, is whenever the, the beat and the subrhythms become catchy, and, and sort of have a life of their own, we've gotten off track. It's just basically, and, and that's something we could discuss at great length, but. Yeah, um, but that, that, what I want to do is just explore further that what you mean by off track. So the assumption here is that we're looking at the traditions that have, for which there is a broad consensus in the past that these are right. right for the liturgy, this and these are, represent what you call consecrated to the to the liturgy. That's right. That's right. And then what you're doing, and that's something that I couldn't do. I might hear things, maybe, and identify. But what you can do is analyze those musically in terms of the structures right. of harmony and counterpoint and this sort of thing, and spot certain universal principles. Is and that's correct. Yeah. When you say we're off track, um, well, it might be right, it might be wrong, we're down to opinion again, but if we care about tradition and want to be guided by it, um, even yeah. if we're producing a new form, um, it should still, we would say, part, the, the best guideline is that it contains those common elements that you've That's identified. Right. And you can do that musically, not just using not just linguistically, shall we say, using phrases yeah. as goodness of form, you know what those forms are in terms of musical structures. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now that sounds, uh, you know, like, wow, here we go. Well, we sort of have a formula, don't we? But we, no, it, we, that, even though that helps us when we look at it from the outside, so to speak, there still remains a question for composers, but how do you do this? I mean, you, it's not mathematics. It's not like you just say, okay, I'm going to take, you know, all these different ingredients. I'm going to put them together and there I go. I know I've got a, a wonderful new series. So there's an L there's also the element of inspiration, which is absolutely essential. Mm. And for that, um, there, there needs to be, we need to be committed to this, a, a prayerful approach in which we're always looking for the inspiration of the Holy spirit. And, um, and again, that's not, uh, there's a certain uh, what do you call it, vulnerability or, or weakness that's inherent in that because um, 
you know, nobody should say, well, here, listen to me. I know that I've got the whole, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've got the, the uh, monopoly on this. No, but it's, it's uh, as composers approach uh, sacred music in this way, and it, as we respect the tradition, and as we pray, and as we seek, you know, persistently the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then I think there's there uh, we we can see that this amazing thing is happening, that um, that we're given a gift of new forms, yeah, that do or that are in unity with the tradition, and I would say that you know again looking historically. You know, with with uh, the development of Gregorian chant itself, for example, way back when in the you know third fourth centuries, that that's just the beginnings. Of course, chant developed uh, in in the following centuries quite a bit as well. But um, when Latin was first used, the the chant that was was developed was it depended on new inspirations that. That diverged in a certain way from the East, the Middle Eastern modes and melodies that had started out. Also, in the in, in the looking in the Renaissance, now we look back and we say, "Wow, this the, this Renaissance polyphony seems to be uh, so harmonized." You might say with chant, I mean, harmonized in the sense of its its nature, it, it they fit well together. But that needed certain people to dare <laughs> to try new things too. Um, here's, I'm going to, um, I think we need to finish there. This has been fascinating, but I've got some, I, I would like to invite you back. I think we've got a couple more, um, things that we could explore. Um, but I just want to summarize my, in my own words, what my understanding of what you said and just see what, throw this back at you. So what, what you're talking about in isolating these, uh, universal um, forms musically that you, you're able to, to discern as a someone who is a composer and knows about music in a way that I don't. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say that it's this is reasonable in, to me that we still need the inspiration. This is not a formula for making beautiful music. Um, it, it is a formula, it is a formula in other words, we shouldn't go beyond those criteria, or should we say everything we do should include those criteria? That's probably a better way of putting that, putting it. But it's just the same argument that says um, understanding how to construct sentence, sentences and write well does not make you Shakespeare. Um, knowing the, the, all the mathematics of harmony and proportion um, doesn't make you an artist. Uh, you still have to know how to use those things okay. well. And that Absolutely. is the mystery factor that, 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 is, that relies yes. on inspiration. Um, and so it occurs to me that uh, there are two things here that I would like to talk to you about, and they have parallels in art. So this will be a little bit more of a to and fro. One is the nature of inspiration and creativity as well, because I think that's something that's woefully misunderstood in the modern age. Um, mm -hmm. And in short, everybody thinks that, you know, if I feel it, it comes from God. And, and so how do we, it, it, 
we can't discard emotion and feeling altogether, but there are many more things we need to, to do. So I, I would love to talk about that with you and how for you that process, or the creative process works. Um, how do you exercise that freedom well and how do we recognize it? I, I've got ideas as an artist and I'd love to talk to you about that actually. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is that, um, that, that it's commonly felt that the problem with music in the modern age has arisen from too much freedom. I'm going to assert that actually it's the reverse. <laughs> it's not enough authentic freedom. The, 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 this is, what we have has been imposed on us largely from above. And, it's, and the problem is that it's terrible. The problem is um, perhaps exercise of central control, perhaps too much deferential treatment of what's coming to us from the, the center, should we say, on the part of various parishes and, and laity. And in fact, if we allowed people that freedom, we talked about this tension between freedom and, for, and conformity, should we say, if we allowed people to work this out and you had many people um, trying to address this, I have faith actually that the best rises to the surface. What we have had in the last 60 years is a situation where no one can do that, whether it's a traditionalist asserting rigid, and I'm, I'm characterizing the extremes here, but on the one hand, traditionalists asserting rigid adherence to the past, modernists asserting a rigid adherence to what comes out of the missalettes, um, and no one really has any choice. Um, and if you try and introduce something which doesn't conform, if you go against the uh, what uh, has been imposed on us, uh, it, it's very, very difficult. And actually what we need is more freedom Freedom, of course, meaning not simply lack of constraint, but um, with an understanding of the end to which that music is directed. And I think that's yes. something that we could talk about in the future as well, to be honest. Yes, sounds but, good. Okay. I love it. All right, Paul. Um, I, I, want, I can't wait till we do that. Let's arrange that as soon as possible. This has been absolutely fascinating really difficult subjects to deal with because it's a nuanced um argument that you're making um that is easily um pigeonholed into into something which um people will want to counter by creating straw man arguments i think so i hope that we did that clearly um before we say goodbye i'm just to say thank you very much paul just just tell us again where people can get hold of you um and talk to you about this and as i say any patrons out there commission music from paul his work in my opinion really does encapsulate what's needed today um, in the liturgy so paul give us your your yes. details pauljernberg.com and jernberg is j-e-r-n-b-e-r-g so pauljernberg.com is the easiest way. There's also magnificatinstitute.org. So either of those places, you can just go to the contact page and it's very easy to reach me. Terrific. 
Okay, Paul Jernberg, fascinating once again, and I can't wait to the next time. And, uh, see you soon. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you are interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university. Thank you.